so happy to have you here, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's so nice bumping into you on Halloween. Yeah, your Superman co- uh, costume was pretty <laughs> was pretty tight to, to be expected. Walking around Edgemont. Well, yeah, it was uh, tight and very uh, tight. <laughs> very tight. I try not to look, but I couldn't help. Well, Cam doesn't mind that. I don't know. It's kind of the point, right? That is the point. Plus, yeah, I get the Edgemont moms don't mind looking either. <laughs> <laughs> I saw my wife looking. I get to wear uh, full muscles for it looked like you for a day. It was like a dream come true. Oh man, it was awesome. It was so nice seeing you, and uh, glad to have you back on the mainland. It's nice to be back. The mainland is good. Kelowna, brother from another another mother. Yep, I know. Making Kelowna proud. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of good people from Kelowna actually. Who? A lot of good people. Name one. Cam Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Friend. What about that uh, that cool actor? Yeah, he was in that football uh, football show. That's right. What's his um, name? He's in the Avengers. Kitchener? Kitch. Kitch. Um, and then his brother, I believe. What's his full name? You say Kitch like you know him, but I... I know, because, I, cause, well, I feel like I know him. Um, and I believe his brother started that wine called Kitch Wines. Yeah, on. that's right. Yeah. And then I believe the same guy who started the wine started Saks Underwear. You know the Saks Underwear with the pouch? Yeah, I you, do. Yeah. They started that and sold it. And I think he started the Kitch Wines. Nice. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the the actor. Yeah, I don't he's pretty, know. He's pretty legit. I don't, he totally is. I, I'm going to guess Tyler Kitchener or something like that. Tyler Kitch. I think that's what is it that is. Is that what it is? Yeah. K-I-T-S-C-H, I believe. Yeah. And uh, they've got a pretty cool winery, actually, in uh, East Kelowna, right behind where I, where I grew up. Yeah, they nice. got this, like, built this awesome house. I think he's got, like, a little infinity pool, and, and, and you can go there and tour the winery. How'd you like growing up there? It was, um, it was small, I would say growing up, certainly when I go back, it's, it's a lot cooler. I would say the wine scene's pretty cool. I would never say when I left at 18, I was like, I'm never coming back to this place. I went to KLO. It was kind of a crappy high school. I think it's a, I think it's a middle school now. It was too small. I was like, I needed to get out of there, but certainly going back now and with my kids, I could, you could probably convince me to move there. Um, Yeah. I liked it. I didn't know it was too small. Not at the time, I guess. I was just ignorant, small town kid. I yeah. thought it was, I liked, uh, I liked the things I miss now, like I, the personal freedoms. Like I remember yeah. being a little kid and riding my BMX, like all yeah. the way to Orchard Park and yeah. just taking me like a whole day, half a day to get there and half yeah. a day to get back basically. Yeah. And by the time I was 16, I could, um, I was so proficient, like pulling the boat behind the truck and yeah. launching. I could take it out with my yeah. buddies and have a day on the lake and, course big white i think it's a pretty awesome place to grow up yeah i mean when you look at it when i tell people about it i think i think once i left i i, I started to appreciate it more i mean the ski hills you got big white silver star apex you got the you got the obviously the lake golfing the wine scene now is pretty impressive um and i tell people there's 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 not a better place in the world i mean i've, I've traveled around the world i've lived around the world i mean tough to be Kelowna, especially in the summer totally that's amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, certainly, I could I move back. You can definitely convince me to move back, raise my family there. I would say with with kids that are active now and in sports. When I was growing up there, playing competitive soccer, I had to travel to Vancouver. That, that's it's still it still has that small town from that aspect, but comes with the freedom that you were just saying totally. riding your bike and still a little you know still is a small town. So. Yeah. What was it like? 
playing soccer there. I mean, I played, but not at, at your level. I played, made the rep team when I was 12, but that was yeah. the extent of it. It was, uh, was like, it were you easy? good? Like right from day one? Well, it's funny. I, I was, I never like at that time, especially soccer. I mean, it was always, it was always hockey. Like I was kind of the weirdo that played soccer that like cared about soccer. Everybody plays house. Everybody plays, they, they play rec soccer. And then I think once you start to become competitive, you know, I was, I was the weird guy that played soccer and I was a weird guy that would go to Vancouver. And it was kind of this like weird thing. This guy's traveling to Vancouver to play soccer. Who does that? You know, that would be normal if it was hockey. So that, um, you know, I think now, nowadays soccer's dirt definitely it's, it's trending upwards. Yeah. I think it's the, uh, it's, I think, I think it might be the most popular sport in this country now from a participation level. Yeah. Um, you know, kids are following it. It's, you know, there's, there's global icons that, you know, my young kids talk about in school that was never happening growing up, especially in Kelowna. So yeah. it was, a, it was a bit of a blue collar hockey, maybe football vibe in Kelowna. So again, it was, it was rare to play competitive soccer, which is why I had to go to Vancouver. I traveled to Vancouver every weekend. My dad drove me um, to play where in what league? I played in the high performance league in Vancouver. So I played, I, I believe I played for North shore selects. And then we played against all the top teams around the, around the lower mainland. And that was it. That was the only opportunity for soccer. And then you make the provincial team, which I made. So the top kids in the age group for, for BC. And then for BC, we'd represent our province, uh, annually in these competitions. So, you know, being from small town Kelowna, it was rare. I think it was the first guy to ever really make it outside of Kelowna on the BC provincial team. That was a big deal. So I was, uh, I was, that was a big deal. But again, it was still kind of like, it was rare. I was, I was the odd kid in school that was playing the sport, yeah. which has certainly changed now. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so how old were you when you made the provincial team? Uh, I think I was, I think I was 13, I think, which is now funny enough. My son is 13 and he's getting into soccer and he's playing high performance. And I said, look, you know, he says he wants to be a professional soccer player. I said, okay, well, you know, the percentages in this country to make it professionally, you know, you have to be maybe top five within your age group to actually make a living in soccer. So that's in this country. So, okay, so let's break that down now. Let's look at your province. Uh, the last time someone's out of BC, born and raised, raised in BC that have made it professionally. And when I say made it, that's that's a career where you make money that, you know, legitimate money. Like you could retire. When you could retire and you don't have to work. And, and I think I was the last guy out of this province to do that. Wow. And, and I was, uh, I'm born in 81. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so let's talk about being a professional. Okay. Are you the best in your age in this province? Let's start with that. And then you really have to be the top, uh, you know, top five, maybe, you know, top two or three in your age in this country to make it professionally. Okay, so let's break that down. So let's not talk about being a professional at 13, 14, 15 until you can start achieving that. Yeah. And I, look, I'm not saying my son has to go pro or I'm, I'm just more talking generally. Yeah, yeah. So it's tough. It's tough in this province. Um, yeah, a lot of, it's nice to have that as a dream, especially when you're a kid, but there's a lot of milestones to reach. There is, and, and I think, you know, in, in the household, my wife was a uh, NCAA volleyball player. So she had a full ride to UC California. Uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, I, I had a full ride there. I played professionally. So the conversation in our household's not normal. You know, no, so no. I, I think the, the standards are a little bit higher in, yeah. in the friend house. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more pressure as well. Yeah, probably. 
yeah. even if not intentional, right? Even no. if you didn't say a word about it, your kids still figure you out and yeah. want to follow in yeah. footsteps. And now there's a bit of street cred because they, you know, in, in school, they start Googling me and they're on their iPads and showing their friends. And so they're starting to talk about that. Yeah. Not saying I'm, I'm irrelevant right now, obviously, but back in the day, there's still a bit of that cred that you can look me up online and the, the kids are showing their friends at school. Yeah, totally. Dad played in the Bundesliga, he played for Canada. Yeah. And so they're, they're starting to throw that around now. So yeah, yeah it's, it's not a normal household. Yeah. Well, it probably helps them get a second look from a coach and, uh, you know, you know, helps them, uh, gives them goals. Yeah, no, certainly from, yeah. When you look at opportunity, um, you know, when you're, when your parents play it at a high level, it certainly opens doors. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers in, in any sport nor in any, any industry is, is the door opening. So when dad's played pro mom's played at a high level, whether it's college, whether it's professional, you know, it certainly opens the doors and, and, uh, whether it's, you know, the local select team. So, you know, obviously it's up to the kid up to that person totally to achieve it. And that's why I love sports because it's the purity of it. You have to actually earn it. There's no handouts in sports, Yeah, but certainly you can kind of help open those doors. Yeah. But then it's up to them. Yeah. When did you know that soccer was your thing? Was it when you were 13? Funny enough, I, uh, you know, I was multi-sport. I, I skied, I played basketball, played rugby, played all the sports. I was on the BC provincial volleyball team up until grade 12. Um, so I'm a big believer of the multi-sport, uh, multi-dimensional human being. I think we're losing that in, in society right now, especially in new sports. I see it right now. Like you mean it helped you in each sport because it, you played the other? I, it definitely did. I was I was very athletic, so that helped my my game. Um, you know, I think it helped me prolong my career. Um, but uh, this, you know, this day and age, when you look at high performance sport, you look at hockey. These kids at 12 years old have to focus on one sport. That becomes their identity at 12, 13. And, and you're seeing these kids that are, that are in, in, you know, they have to leave high school at, at, you know, in grade eight and they go to these warehouses and they, they do two or three hours of, of learning. And then they're at 12 o'clock, they're on the ice at 13 years old, which means they're, they're identifying as the hockey player. That's, that's what they are. Yeah. That's dangerous. Totally. Um, you know, wh and whether it's hockey, whether it's anything, but you know, we're still in a hockey nation. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for being a multi-sport and having other hobbies and interests because the sport, you, you eventually, it ends one day, whether you're, you know, end in high school, whether you're in university, it ends and, and it's a big problem. And when you're identifying at 12 years old, 13 years old as that I'm the hockey player, I'm the high performance, I'm, I'm leaving high school now. And it's everything. Uh, that's everything. And that's, that's who you are at that age. That's, that's pretty dangerous. So I think, you know, we have to be careful with that. So back to soccer, you're growing up in Kelowna now your BC team, your multi-sport. And it was, it seems kind of natural. Like, uh, you eventually just liked soccer the most or it was, you're the yeah. just a little bit better at it. Well, funny enough in, in grade 12, I was actually getting scholarship offers in the U S and Canada for volleyball as well. And there was a moment there where I was questioning what sport I want to pursue in university. And, and at that time it was there wasn't any ambition to go pro in either sport. It was get a, get an education. And then, you know, my, my, my Saskatchewan parents were education, then go work. Yeah. And that was it. That was the goal. And so there was never a con not once a conversation in my household about professional and, you know, so, okay. So I was 18 at the time. Now I can certainly say nowadays at 18, 18, 19, you should be turning pro. If you're not turning pro at 19 in soccer, 
you're either an extremely late bloomer, you've been unlucky or you're just not good enough, you know? So, so the game's gotten younger. Yeah. Um, but I was pursuing scholarships in the U S in volleyball, soccer. And honestly, I had to think about it cause I love both sports equally, I'd say. And it was, it was almost a bit of intuition, bit of maybe the global game being a little bit more relevant still soccer sort of being that sport. Um, but it was a hard decision. So I had an offer to go to the U S and, and I, and I took the, the scholarship to go to, to university of Michigan actually. And then, and then I spent a year there and then went to UC Santa Barbara and then became all American. And, uh, but certainly again, it was, it was every year. It was like, go to university, get my education and, and do well in soccer. Okay. And then I dipped my toe into that and I was, okay, I'm doing quite well in the NCAA. And again, I'm a Kelowna boy playing in NCAA D1 at a big university. And I was like, I made it. Yeah. This is great. And then the next year it's like, I'm doing better. And then there's, there's people talking about being professional. I was like, huh? Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's something, but I'm getting my education. And then year three, I'm getting, you know, all American you know, I'm breaking records in the NCAA and I'm like, okay, maybe there's something here. And then I'm getting called into the youth national team thinking, okay, maybe, maybe there's something here. And then by, by, by year four in university, I'm the top scorer in the NCAA. Uh, I think I had like 22 goals that season and I'm getting calls from MLS clubs, European clubs are, are calling me. So really from my first year to, to my last year, from, from freshman to, to senior in university, I went from not even entertaining being a professional to taking offers in Europe uh, in my last year of university. So it was, it was, it was never a, here's I'm setting my goal and I'm, I'm gonna be a pro. It was just, you know, be the hardest worker. You know, it's the stereotypical first on last off kind of thing. And that's kind of the, the approach I made and just make sure I'm, um, you know, doing the most work on my team and, and, you know, and slowly progress up that ladder. And, and that's sort of how it sort of naturally evolved. That's cool. It's a cool way to get good. I was going to ask if you didn't tell me, but I love that story. I watched uh, a movie about it recently. can't remember, but it's the same type of thing. Guy barely makes the, the says he's not going to make the football team, you know, barely makes it just keeps at it. I had the same experience rowing, barely made the team and yep. eventually uh, got a scholarship and, and uh, panned out, but it was just work ethic and commitment. And I think, I think when you look at professionals around the world, most were never the most talented and so naturally, you know, the, 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 the least talented or, or the ones that aren't as talented have to work harder. It's, it's sort of the known concept of, you know, then, then it instills that work ethic, you know, and, and so you have to work harder. And the way, you know, sports or business or anything, you know, it's, it's long-term, it's not short-term, it's not short-term gain, you know, and it's, it's like this week, I'm going to make sure I put in the extra work. Well, you're not going to see that the following week, but if you keep doing it and sort of, I sort of had these short-term goals where it's every week, every month, and then all, all of a sudden, six months later, I was like, damn, I'm better. I can feel this. There's tangible improvement in my game. Okay. Well, that was working the last six months every single day, staying a little extra, working on my shots, working on my agility, working, making sure I was, I was the last guy off the field. And I, it was turned into almost competition. Then it was like, if some guy tried to stay after, I would literally wait and just keep working until he, he left. <laughs> and it's just like this internal competition. Most annoying teammate ever. Oh yeah. And I, I started to get pissed. I'm like, it's been an hour. And I'm like, this guy's not getting off. And then, so th that's just th that, that was instilled in me. And, and yeah, that's, it was slow. It's a slow progress. It's not overnight. And, uh, I think 
I think society, this day and age, everybody wants short term, right? Yeah. And I want it right away. And, yeah. and sports is, is real and it, it tells you the truth. Whatever you're going to put into it yeah. gives back and it, it's long term. And the incremental gains are kind of smaller and smaller once you get to that level too. You're working so yeah. hard to get just a tiny yeah. bit better. Yeah, that's it. They're, they're small. And again, it's, it, you don't notice it. You don't notice it till six months, 12 months later. And, um, so it takes time. And, and if you're impatient, if you're like, well, shit, I was working, you know, I stayed extra for this week and I didn't score goals this weekend. That's, that's absolutely, you're done. You yeah. have that mentality. It's, it's, it's incremental over time. And, you know, then also in 23, 24, every, if you look at my career, you know, starting in, in my first year, first year of university to the end, I was still improving in my thirties and I still have that same mentality. And at 31, I was improving and 32, like it just continued where I think you saw a lot of the, the professionals, especially in, in Germany, you know, these guys turned pros that said they're, they're turning pro at 17, 18. They were, they're, they're sort of the one dimensional athlete and they started peaking at 26, 27. And I just continued because I was sort of that late bloomer and it certainly helped my career. I wonder why you mentioned us getting younger. Like it's, it's 19 now and you should be pro. Why, why is it getting younger? It's, it's in the youth and I'm seeing it right now. And I, as I mentioned with my 13 year old boy is, uh, you're again, growing up, majority of kids were multi-sport. You'd start to focus at 16, 17. You'd maybe drop your final sport. You'd maybe play a high school sport. Now at, at 13, 14, if you're not in the high performance, you're not in these academies and that's your only sport. I mean, in hockey, again, I'm using that as the example because my son's in it. And, you know, they expect you to be on the ice seven to 10 days a week, you know, yeah. morning, afternoon, middle of school, pull yourself out. So obviously if you're, if you're that focused at that age at, at 16, 17, 18, you're going to start getting looks as a pro. And that's the problem. I think in, in, again, I'm going to use soccer as an example is, is if you're not turning pro at 19, you're, you're almost written off teams are teams are passing you're old you're old and i think there's a lot of talent in sports in general and that's where i think i love the universities because it's for the late bloomer it's the kid that wasn't the the high performer at 17 18 that went into university maybe as a multi-sport maybe he's not the best kid in university and you know there's the raw friends that are out there that need that opportunity and uh i think we need to you know, in the pro sports world, we need to have a look at those players as well, because there's, there's plenty of them out there that, you know, maybe they're going to, they're going to be late bloomers, but I think there's, uh, you know, those, those guys are out there. So after Michigan, did you go to California? Yeah. I went to, yeah. I, I spent about a year, actually it was a year and a half in Michigan. The school was Western Michigan university, about 30,000, uh, kids, people, um, in a city called Kalamazoo. And, uh, quite the place coming from coming from Kelowna to Kalamazoo yeah uh party university like most universities in the U.S. and and big fraternity sorority culture I never joined you know when you're when you're on the sports and sports team that's like your fraternity right that's your brothers but it was uh it was a big party school not a great soccer school and then I think after that year and a half I was like if I'm gonna make it I need to go to better university so I just started sending letters out and uh, I targeted California. And I was like, why not? Yeah. Let's, let's move to California. Yeah. And uh, and so anyways, the UC Santa Barbara coach, who's still the coach there, a guy named Tim Bomsteig, he called me and he's like, you know, at that time I was flirting with some other pretty big universities at that time. I was starting to make a name for myself in, in the NCAA route. Uh, he called me, he said, come down for, for a week. 
and trust me, you're not going to leave. And, and so I went down there for a week and he, he obviously set it up. It's a formula, right? They know how to get these guys there. <laughs> I was, I think four days straight, I was at, you know, parties and, uh, and, uh, you know, this kid from Saskatchewan and Kelowna being thrown into Santa Barbara was, uh, was pretty wild. So after awesome. four, after four days, I was, I was sold, Yeah, signed the scholarship I was in and I uh, spent, you know, two and a half years there. And, uh, my grades dropped, started surfing, um, you know, doing a lot of, a lot of different experimenting with a lot of different things. And, uh, I think, you know, I lived on the water. So the, in Santa Barbara and the campus called Isla Vista, literally the house was on the beach and you, and you ride these to, to get to class, you either ride a, a beach cruiser bike or a longboard skateboard. So here I am, this boy from Kelowna slash Saskatchewan being thrown, dropped into a a campus on the water in Santa Barbara with blonde girls everywhere. You know, I'm a sucker for blonde girls or, or brunettes. Sorry, babe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I'm riding around these bikes and, and you know, these cruisers and, and your head swiveling. And so next, you know, you're like, oh, I don't need to go to class I can surf today. <laughs> I don't need to do that. I can do, do this. And grades started dropping. My, my soccer game started, you know, going down. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, th that was probably year three where I started flirting with, you know, the idea of going pro. And, uh, I remember having a call with my dad and I think I just got back from surfing. I skipped school all day. I was, I was failing out of university and, and, you know, my dad was getting calls saying, you know, he, he's about to flunk, you know, and, and, uh, even though I was on a full ride, it still cost money to be down there. And, and he just, you know, my dad just heart and soul Saskatchewan man, business guy. And, and he's just like, what the hell are you doing? Like snap out of this. What do you want with your life? You know, and like any university kid. And, but again, I was like that. I'm, have you been down here? Like, this is, this is crazy. Yeah. There's too many distractions. And he's like, snap out of it, get your shit together and start focusing on school. And so there was like a, it was like an epiphany. And I remember sitting on that surfboard and I was, do I flunk out of university? What am I going to do? Do I try to go pro? And I remember sitting on, on, uh, my surfboard right outside of my house and catching these amazing waves. And, and I was contemplating again, dropping out, trying to go pro. Do I stay one more year at university? And it was like, someone spoke to me and, um, sitting out in the waves there. And it was this moment I can remember it like it was yesterday and by myself in the ocean, it was this epic day of surfing and, and, um, you know, contemplating life. And, and there was like this moment where it's like, you need to stay. And it was like, God spoke to me. He's like, you need to stay another year, get your shit together, you know, recalibrate, refocus. And I swear, I remember coming in from that, that, that surfing day and, and I walked in and it was like, I snapped out of it. Honestly, I snapped out of it and, and I, I, you know, removed all the shit, all the distractions, uh, stopped smoking weed, you know, stopped screwing around with girls. And, uh, you know, and then I just started focusing on soccer, focusing on going to, uni uni or going to school, going to classes. And, um, you know, probably weeks later is what, when I met my wife and, uh, nice. so we became friends for, for six months and because I stayed and then the next year I played and then I went off to, uh, I went off to Europe after that season. So that's cool. So if I, if I'd not been surfing that day and had that sort of voice, that moment. Never, never met my wife and life would look a lot different. Oh man, it's such a good story. Yeah. Reminds me of, um, my rowing coach said to me one day he's like I, i've seen guys like you before and i was like what do you mean he's like oh, you're trying to do it all i'm like yeah why not and he, i'm like what do you mean though he's like well 
you know, you can, there's three things to university. You can party, you can get good grades at school and you can excel at sport, but you cannot do all three. He said, you got to choose two. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I tried to prove him wrong, failed miserably. Um, but yeah, it always stayed with me. It's always helped me focus, not necessarily maybe on one thing, but just understand that sometimes, uh, when you try and do it all that Mm -hmm. everything suffers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in life and business, we try to do too much. Right. Definitely. And, and and just be really good. Yeah. Maybe one thing. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. Well, thank God you met Mari because you guys have such a nice life and three beautiful yeah, kids. Yeah, she's a rock. She's yeah. a rock. And I'm, you know, again, I'm just some crazy kid from Kelowna. Did and, you... and if I didn't have her as, as guiding me and, and keeping me grounded, mm-hmm. who knows what I, where I'd be. Might be on those streets out there. The right. volleyball connection's interesting. Yeah. I mean, because you were a soccer player, but uh, she was a volleyball player. And um, maybe you played volleyball with her one day and it was just love it. Well, yeah, it's funny like, enough. Well, cause, cause we played similar seasons. So in, there was volleyball and soccer in the fall at university. And so we'd share the weight room. Um, you know, you'd see each other around during the seasons. And I remember seeing her in the weight room and I tell my kids this cause they ask, yeah, oh, where'd you meet mom? How'd you meet mom? And I remember seeing her in the weight room and I remember she walked, walked by and, and all the guys were, were looking at her on the team. And I was like, I, I honed in, I was like, that's the one. And that was, and honestly, I'd, I saw her. And, and it sounds cliche, right? That's the one, but it, it was, it was one of those moments where it was, it was like the light was beaming down on her, everything else in the room just went dark. And I had that moment. I still remember it like it was yesterday. And I remember walked by and all the guys, again, all the guys checking out the new girls, you know, you, you, the young guys and, and, uh, first, second years. And, and she was first year that, that, that year I was, I was a sophomore, sorry, I was a junior and, uh, she was your, your first year freshman. And uh, again, so you, you, the new girls are walking in, so everyone's checking them out on the volleyball team. They're wearing the spandex. And yeah, I had one of those moments. And it was about six months later is when we kind of started hanging out. And um, and I think it was, yeah, I was on the beach volleyball court in the off season. I started playing beach volleyball and she was there. And, you know, obviously I remembered her from that one day. Yeah. And so, you know, as, as every guy does, he slowly works his way in. And <laughs> yeah. Rest is history. Now we're living in West Van with three kids. <laughs> That's awesome. But before that, you went to Germany. Well, actually, from from Santa Barbara, I went to Norway. So I left um, after I played my last season, and she stayed at Santa Barbara. She ended up graduating two years later. So we did the distance, and that was distance before social media, before FaceTime, before Skype. Yeah, Um, familiar. You know, we're talking letters, and we're talking like landlines, phone calls, totally. Which. In all reality, in the world we're in with all the distractions, it was it was great. And we really learned how to communicate. So I went to Norway, spent uh, three years there. And at the time, I mean, Norway was a, was a sort of a up-and-coming league and, you know, go from university to, to Norway to Europe. Um, so I went there for three years and then ended up getting bought by a team in Holland, so which was arguably the next level up was was a team, was was the league in Holland, a team called Herrenfein. And then I spent about a year there and then... Uh, my team, my first team in Germany, a team called Borussia Mönchengladbach, a big traditional club, um, called me. We were actually on our honeymoon, and uh, the sporting director of that club called me when we were on our honeymoon saying, we want you. At that time, I hadn't really heard of the club, and it was sort of the same process at university every year. Just let's see where this goes. And my dad, when I went to when, when, when I went to Europe at 21, 
and he said, you know, if by 24, 25, we're not making real money, it's time to come back and, you know, get a real job. And so that was sort of always the deal. And so again, I took the same attitude, you know, just every year do the incremental work and, and, you know, and then I progressed to Holland, made, had, had a better deal there. And, but Germany's really Germany's, you know, there's four big leagues in Europe or in the world. It's, it's England, the Premier League, it's the German Bundesliga, Italian and the Spanish league. So those, those are the big four. And I'd, I'd compare those, you know, when you think of NHL, that's the NHL. There's four NHLs in Europe. So that was the first sort of foray into the big leagues. And so I got a call on my honeymoon and I said, okay, this is it. And, uh, the, the, again, the club's called Borussia Mönchengladbach. Most people hadn't heard of it. Big club in Europe and, um, get off the phone. We're sitting in, uh, in Bora Bora, one of those villas in the water and got off the phone with the sporting director, basically about to sign me. And I said, babe, I'm going to sign for Borussia Mönchengladbach. She says, Borussia, but, but what <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the hell is that? I said, trust me, it's a big club. We're moving to Germany. So that was, uh, yeah, that was a big deal. And I ended up spending seven years in the German Bundesliga. And I, I believe I'm the uh, the top Canadian scorer in the German Bundesliga of all time. I still hold that record. Nice. <laughs> you speak so, German? I do. Let's I hear do. a bit of it. Let's give me a little on me. My Deutsch is uh, ganz schlecht, weil uh, ich habe viel vergessen, aber kann ein bisschen noch Deutsch reden. I love it. Basically, that was, uh, it's getting pretty bad, uh, forgotten German, I bet. but I tell you what, when you, when you don't speak the language, I've been out of the, the country for, I think, uh, nine years now, you forget it real fast. Yeah. But I, when I go back, we were, we were back this summer for two days and, uh, we were in a taxi and, and the beauty of when you, when you go to Europe and you take a taxi in Europe, all the taxi drivers are foreigners. So their second language, you know, the, the mother tongue that they're in. It's normally pretty poor. So actually being in a taxi is one of the best ways to practice your language because you're not intimidated. You can make mistakes. They're making mistakes. So they're either from Afghanistan or Pakistan or, you know, somewhere Eastern Europe. So it's a great way to kind of practice. So anyways, we were in Germany for two days this summer, um, laying over in our, in our European trip with the family and, and the kids have never heard me speak German. And I, you know, just went in and we just started bantering with the taxi driver. Again, he was from Af Afghanistan. And I swear after 20 minutes, my German went from being terrible to fully fluent again. Yeah. And I walked out of the car and the kids were like, looking at me, like never heard me speak German. It's and wild. Like, what? Yeah. It was like wild. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a great, great place to practice your, uh, your language. No doubt. Yeah. Did you go to LA after? Yeah. So after seven years of Germany went, uh, I was 33 and, um, you starting to start to sniff around my retirement, knowing that it's, it's coming. And, uh, my wife's from LA and again, we went to Santa Barbara and that was always sort of the spot I think I'd retire. And, um, I called the coach at LA galaxy said, Hey, I want to come back. Would you be interested? And, and he says, absolutely. We'll take you. And, um, the idea was to spend a couple of years there playing for the LA galaxy. And that, that time that was in 2014, the MLS was, was becoming somewhat credible. When I'd left to university, I got drafted in the MLS in, in 2001. And, uh, I think they offered me like $18,000, uh, like it was, it was borderline semi-professional in 2001. So fast forward to 2014, you know, money's much better. It's a credible league. There's some superstars. Beckham had just left LA galaxy that summer. And, um, so it was an interesting league to come back to. I wanted to kind of, you know, gain a network in North America. I didn't have a great soccer network in North America. So I thought, why not, you know, the biggest club in the MLS, 
you know, let's, let's dip my toe into the U S market and let's see what sort of opportunities come from that. And, uh, yeah, so I ended up playing for LA galaxy. We won the league, but unfortunately I, I ended up having a career ending concussion in 2014. And, um, you know, so that was in the summer and, uh, and so I'd spent a year there and funny enough, you know, that's the thought we were going to raise our family. But after eight or nine months, you know, being a BC boy, you know, with fresh air, with nature, with, you know, with the water, with the seasons, I missed it. I really missed it. And I said, you know, I, one day I came to my wife and I don't know if it was the post-concussion issues where I literally had to hide in a closet. I couldn't go outside for six months. I couldn't be out in the sun. Really? Couldn't play with my kids. I was really in a dark place. And if anyone who's had a really, really severe concussion can speak to that, uh, you go into a very dark, dark place. Like depressed, you mean? Depressed, high anxiety. Um, you know, you, you can't socialize. You can't be in loud, high stimulus environments. Uh, I couldn't go outside with my kids. So I don't know if it was all day, every day, just being sunny. I literally couldn't go out in the sun. Um, and it was accumulation of multiple concussions over my career. And I just went to her and I said, I need, I need out of here. I, I, you know, and again, I don't know if it was the sun, what was, what was telling me to get out of here. And I said, she said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to live in Vancouver Again, being a Kelowna boy. I didn't, I, you know, I knew Kelowna or I knew Vancouver from my Kelowna days. And she's like, well, why Kelowna? We don't have family there. You know, my family's here. We've got babysitters. And I said, I don't know, but give us two years. Let's try it out. And, um, you know, if you don't like it, we can move back. And so, you know, moved to Edgemont, met, met you and uh, the rest is history. Now this is home, the Vancouver's yeah. home. And I, I can't imagine ever leaving it. That's good to hear. Mari's pretty cool, man. She's like so understanding and yep. he must have been like just a broken man. It must have been hard for her to see at that time. It, yeah. You, again, you speak to any professional athlete when they leave the sport, um, you lose a lot of things. You lose your passion. You lose your identity. Uh, you lose your purpose. So sudden. You said it was cumulative, but was there an incident that was like, okay, that's... Well, that's the, the concussion was, was instant. So it was, it was multiple concussions. And then there was one final one that knocked me out. And that was like my brain telling me I had to stop. And that was during the time of the movie Concussion came out. So there was a lot of conversation about CTE, the damage to the brain. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm 33. I made a living out of heading the ball. And I was getting... I was starting to notice things where it's where, you know, I was a little slower, a little more forgetful little foggy, you know, high anxiety in certain environments. I'm like, okay, this isn't right. And I started doing more research. I said, okay, all these headers that I've been doing, that's, that's, you know, part of the, the process to be a pro and, and to get where I came was staying after practice. Well, I stayed after practice. I'd take 50 to hundred headers. So I wasn't shooting the ball. I was asking guys to cross balls in as hard as they can. And these balls aren't light. They're pretty solid. And if anyone's ever headed a ball full speed, your, your head's shaking. That's one time. And I would spend, I'd hit hundreds of balls a day. Crazy. And daily, daily <laughs> and over 15 years. And so I don't know I'm laughing. It's not funny. It just no, sounds crazy. It's crazy when you think of it. Yeah. Like I cringe when I see my, my son, like taking a, like a little header and I was taking like full, full speed, kick the ball as fast, as hard as you can halfway across the field. I'm going to run on as fast as I can and try to head this ball. And, uh, you do that over 15 years. And so it, it helped my career, but by the end it was really starting to feel it. And in my thirties, I was, I was noticing things. And then there was a lot more conversation about these effects in, in, in the NFL in hockey. And no one was talking about soccer. And I'm thinking, okay, what I'm doing is not right. 
And um, was there a play in the game when something happened or was it just like after a certain game, you're like, I feel not right. It was more after practice when I would head a hundred balls and I would literally take four Advils, extra strength just to get to sleep and to wake up the next day to practice again. And then I'd take a handful of Advils and then the painkillers got more and I'd take harder painkillers and I'd go to my doctor and I was just popping painkillers from my head and I'd have headaches and, and fogginess. And I'm like, I couldn't get through a day without painkillers. And I'm like, so you get addicted. I mean, in I, some was, level, I was addicted to not having the pain, pain, the pain lowering yeah. the, the painkillers, lowering the severity and, and you get used to it. And, and these doctors hand out pills like it's candy Yeah, because you're, you're an asset to them. They need you on the field. And so I was just taking these things in and, and, um, I was, again, it was more noticing the mental effects. And, uh, anyways, at 33, um, I took, a, I took a pretty bad hit in practice, knocked me out and the, the, the ringing and the stars lasted for about a month in my head. And I was like, okay, this is serious. Went to all the top neurologists. And so at, at UCLA, I'm sitting there in, in the top neurologist's office and, and I'm literally like shaking a month out of this. And I'm like, what the hell is going on with me? I'm messed up. Must've been terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying in tears, anxieties through the roof. And he's like, puts his hand on me. He's like, okay, I got good news and bad news. He's like, the bad news is you're at high risk of early onset dementia. He goes, I have 400 pound linemen, NFL linemen sit in my office daily in tears. So this is normal. You're okay. He goes, but the good news is there's a lot of research around neuroplasticity, a lot of research around growing your brain back. So we can, we can recover from this, but you have to change your diet. You have to stop playing and, and we need to work on your brain now. Otherwise at 40, you're going to have dementia. And I said, wow. holy shit, yeah, I'll got to change everything. So I said, I'm done. Never touching the ball again. So that was pretty drastic from ending my career to, you know, at, at 18, this was everything. This is who I am. This is my passion. I had to, I had to relearn when to shower as in when you're an athlete, you train, you shower, you sleep, you yeah. eat, repeat. Totally. I had to learn all, relearn all that. And I, I had to, but I remember the first time it took me about six months before I can work out again. And I remember going to the gym for the first time. And I sat there for about 30 minutes. I didn't know how to work out again. I, I didn't like when you worked out before you had an objective, you know, you had to, you had your off season, you had your preseason. I'm like, how am I, how do I work out? Do I just lift weights? Well, I'm not lifting weights for anything. Why am I working out? What's the point of this? I had to relearn all that. And you talk to any athlete, they can speak to that. So, you know, by, by, dealing with the concussion issues and, and all the all the challenges that came with that to losing identity purpose you know it's it was it's a tough it's a tough dark place and i'm not you know it's not like feel sorry for the professional athlete it's uh it's tough and a lot of athletes and and the stats are pretty wild it's uh i believe that it's over 80 percent of professional athletes are either depressed bankrupt or divorced that's wow. a wild stat oh yeah it's terrible yeah, so you're so again when going back to my son or my kids and being a pro athlete is, is great. You get, you know, you get a wonderful life, but it comes with some serious consequences. And, and, uh, you know, you, you talk to a lot of pro athletes and, you know, you lose a lot and you have to deal with a lot when you, when you leave your career. So to kind of relearn that and, and re-identify yourself is, is a challenge, but like anything in life, going through that ad adversity, it makes you better and stronger. 
you know, people are talking about that kind of stuff more now. It's good, you know, about, uh, you know, the football stars, kind of like the classic tough guy. You think that you don't, uh, you know, nothing can hurt him or something like that. And uh, the identity crisis combined with concussion, you know, and the, the double impact of that. And it's even, it's even harder now with social media, like these guys. And even when I was there, you know, it'd be the newspapers, it would be the TV, the criticism you'd get. People feel like they have the right, they're entitled to criticize professional athletes because they're on the public. Think about these guys with the social media, the, the, the people that attack them and, and to be, to be public, you need social media. I was talking to someone about this and, and being a pro athlete, you need your social media because it's part of your brand. There's value, brand value, and you can grow that pretty quickly as a pro athlete but it comes with the abuse. So it's, it's a tough world right now. It is tough. Mm -hmm. You gotta be like, you gotta have some serious thick skin and be able to handle that. Cause people, people feel like they can attack professional athletes cause they're out in the public yeah. getting paid to represent the club, the city that doesn't give you the right to, to trash talk them on social media. And you talk to any of these guys now with the social media, it's a, it's a serious problem. Yeah. And especially in that space. Yeah. It's brutal, man. Yeah. So you, you stuck with soccer though. You started repping players. I think, was that the first thing you did? Yeah. Well, that kind of came by default. Um, you know, when I, when I left my career, you know, I had a large network around Europe and, and at that time, again, MLS was quite an attractive league that a lot of Europeans wanted to come to the MLS. They, they didn't know how. So a lot, a lot of players, former guys, teammates, uh, opponents would call me and say, or even coaches just say, get me into the MLS. Can you get me in the MLS? Can you get me a deal? Can you call the galaxy? So I, um, by default, I just started making calls and just connecting people. And I said, yeah, I'll connect you to, to that club or I'll do that. And next thing I know, I'm like, well, may as well just call myself an agent, a player agent. It's dirty world for sure. Very, very dirty world. The sports agency world is cutthroat and you have, you have to lie, cheat, steal essentially. Really? And I hated that. And I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be the, well, why? I mean, it's, not why do you hate it, but why, why is it like that? Like what made you think that? Well, first to get the player to sign for you, because you have to get a mandate to represent the player. You, you pretty much have to promise the world. You have to promise the world. You be, you, you basically turn into the concierge service because by repping the player, you became, you're, you're the concierge service. I need boots. I need this. I want that sponsorship. Can you help my parents? I need flights. I need this. And you, you have, have to, yes to you have to say yes, because otherwise the, the other agent behind you is going to grab your player. And to make money off your player, you have to basically bend over backwards. Yeah. And then what happens, you have to represent the young players because really that's who you got to grab the young talent to try to get them into the pros and then hopefully represent them their entire career. Well, so the kids 16, 17 years old, and you're not making money off them yet, but yet they're treating you like they are. So they want a Nike deal. They want dad to get a job. They want first class flights that they want you to pay for. And I'm thinking, well, I don't need the money. Why am I doing this? Like, I don't need this. And on Sunday at 10 o'clock at night, when I'm watching a movie with my wife, I'm getting blown up by a 17-year-old African kid saying, hey, you need to come down here to Portland to, to sort me out and, and help me find, you know, I'm kicked out of my apartment or I'm, I've got a party and I've got a problem, whatever. And I'm like, I don't need this. Why am I doing this? It's, yeah. it's a, so honestly, I spent about six, six months, maybe a year in that world. And I said, I, I'm not doing this. But problem is I love the game and, and, and I want to get back to the game. So I said, how do I stay in the game and try to make a difference? And I wanted to make a difference as an agent and it was too dirty. And I was just like, you know, I don't need this. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stay in this world as an agent. So in the indoor training center, was that next? 
Yeah. So again, when, when you look at how do I, how do I, as an entrepreneur, how do I, um, stay in the game? How do I give back? And, uh, yeah, so I opened up to indoor high performance sort of, uh, it was this new technology that came out of the US, like a batting cage for soccer. And I thought that was a really cool concept. And then I thought it was a, a interesting business opportunity. And so I got the rights for that machine to bring up to uh, to Canada. So these machines are called Toka, Toka machines. It's like, I think it has about 20 balls. It fires off these mini balls at you. So you work in your touch and you get up to 500 touches an hour. And I thought that was a really interesting concept for the development space for, for this sport. So I said, why don't I bring it to Canada, turn it into a, you know, it's twofold. It's an, it could be an interesting business and, you know, I'm, I'm helping kids develop. And so I, I opened up these two facilities and one in North Van, one in Langley. And, um, you know, they were a huge success. And funny enough, the, the mother company ended up raising about 150 million uh, US dollars, I believe. And uh, they bought me out, moved my, my shares into the main company. And now they're the biggest indoor facility owner in the world. Um, they've started, it's called Toka Social. So it's like top golf for soccer, which is a wild concept, but they've turned this technology into a social space where they've got these little interactive studios where the ball shoots out at you and you're in these little cages with, with these screens around you, interactive. So you receive the ball, you shoot the ball and you're, you're hitting these screens and then there's a bar behind you and so there's one in London right now that's absolutely crushing it. And if you look at Toka Social and now they're opening, they're opening one in Denver, they want to open one in Vancouver. It's like top golf for soccer. So yeah. you could be either a former player, a current player, or actually never played the sport, but it's a great social experience. And I think it's a really interesting space, right? That sort of that social space, but you're a little bit active. Yeah. It's kind of whether it's pickleball, mini golf, it's darts, bowling. Uh, golf, that sort of, that, that social sport is turning into a really interesting business. So yeah, Toka ended up turning into that. And, it's cool. and uh, I think they're going to open up one of Vancouver in the next couple of years. Nice. Yeah. And then after that, it was over to the island. Yeah. So um, Canadian Premier League in uh, 20. So again, when I, I'm in this space, former player, there was, there was conversation about Canada hosting the World Cup. And I thought there's no way in hell that's ever going to happen. Um, we're, we're, we're a third world country in soccer, but there was some traction gaining on a, on a COVID between, you know, with USA, Mexico and Canada hosting the world cup. But in order to do so, in order for Canada to get the world cup, we needed our own professional league and start looking at it. And Canada was the last first world country without a professional soccer league. It's pretty wild to think. And everyone go, everyone asks, you know, there's three, what about Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal? Well, they play in an American league. It's not, it's an American sanctioned league, but in order, if you're going to host the world cup, you need a pro league. So you're saying the Vancouver Whitecaps you're talking about. Vancouver Whitecaps, they play in the MLS, it's an American league, Toronto FC, American league. We don't have, we didn't at the time have our own professional soccer league. Every country in the world has one. Wow. Whether you're Norway, whether you're Denmark, whether you're Chile, whether you're in, in Africa. And because of that, players like myself growing up didn't have the opportunity to play domestically, you had to go to abroad. You had to go to university like myself. So myself, and there was interest, there was, there was, there was gaining interest around interesting sports investors. Some CFL owners were interested, they had some venues. Long story short, we came up with, with a concept where if we're gonna start a professional league, we need something more sustainable than just starting your own franchise. 
So we came together and we worked with Canada Soccer and we said, you know, we're going to create this business entity called Canada Soccer Business that we're going to buy the commercial rights off Canada Soccer, which is our governing body, which is the men's and women's national team, our youth national team, all the way down to grassroots. At the time, they were irrelevant. The men's team was ranked 100 plus in the world. You had The men's team had to pay to get on TSN to show a game. Uh, sponsors weren't even close to Canada Soccer. They weren't interested in the sport. Nowhere near a World Cup, irrelevant. So we said, why don't we take the rights, we'll buy it off Canada Soccer, we'll reinvest in it, we'll start a professional men's league, eventually start a professional women's league in this country, start an ecosystem that develops players, develop the economy in this country, soccer economy, and then let's, in parallel, by having our own domestically, we're going to help the national team. By helping the national team, eventually you make the World Cup. Sponsorships go up, broadcasts go up reinvest back into the game, create a proper economy like everywhere else in the world, whether you're England, whether you're Germany. So for us to be relevant, for us to host a World Cup, we needed our own league. So long story short, we created this Canada soccer business where the original owners in the league, myself and my partners as one, uh, we, we bought a franchise, moved it to Victoria. We owned close to 10% of this Canada soccer business, which is really the true backbone of the investment the commercial rights, the broadcast rights, the men's and women's national team, and then the Canadian Premier League consolidated into one interesting business. Now, if you're a sponsor, you you invest in that. So you're the official whatever of the Canadian Premier League and the men's and women's national team. At that time, it was quite irrelevant. We had a startup league and we had a national team that was nowhere near a World Cup. The women's team had success. There was some success at the World Cup. There was success at the Olympic level, but that was really it. So... We started the Canadian Premier League, myself and my investors. I moved over to the island because I dove all in what I like to do, get my hands dirty, start a professional soccer team on, on Vancouver Island called Pacific Football Club. I moved over there for three years and, and a hell of an experience. And I got, you know, I got my hands dirty. I understood that, you know, from ticketing to partnerships to community engagement, fan engagement, stadium engagement, and uh, learned a hell of a lot in three years. And and uh, I really think giving back to the game, you know, we get four to 5,000 every game now in, in Victoria. People said that would never happen. What's really what I love most about what's happened over there and, and why I love the game of football, game of soccer is it really truly is the beautiful game. It unites people, it brings people together, there's passion. And when you go to these games with an intimate stadium and I look around, you know, and, and, and the idea started honestly on a napkin, drawing a logo saying, you know, what, what should we call this team? And Vancouver Island's never had a professional sports organization. And I go there now to these games and there's 5,000 people there and there's, there's kids running around with their face painted. There's the purists that love the game, that want, love watching our team play. There's families, there's friends, there's neighbors hugging each other. It's a community. It's a proper community. And, um, so by bringing that to, um, it looks awesome. Yeah. So typical day in Lankford there. Well, it pretty much is. Yeah. It it's, uh, people said we'd never get a thousand people to the games. And yeah. And look at that. We're, we're averaging 4,000. And, awesome. uh, you know, we, we, we end up playing the Canadian championship with, which is our, um, competition where we play the three MLS clubs Yeah, actually. And we ended up beating the Vancouver Whitecaps last year, uh, wow. in the Canadian championship, little, little, you know, David versus Goliath. Yeah, that's cool. You see the jerseys there. We teamed up with a local indigenous artist. Uh, and we we were the first pro team to, to wear a local indigenous uh, jersey. And proceeds go to the community and to give back. 
Cool. So we're building a mini soccer field in the community uh, on a First Nations land. And um, there, there's us lifting the trophy last year. That's awesome. And it's really inspiring what we did to, to, to start with nothing, just a concept to having this. And this is, a you know, the heart and soul. You see people walking around Victoria everywhere in purple. And they're proud of this club now. Yeah, it's it's really in a cool place to see what we did. And someone said because we just started the new football club, the new team called Vancouver Football Club. Last week we just launched it. And someone, well, I was getting interviewed, and someone said, well, "How does it feel to start something that's going to outlive you?" And it's a cool concept because yeah. you look around the world, and clubs are 150 years old in Europe, and these are like heart and souls of the communities, and it's, it's got to start somewhere. And and you know, I see Pacific being growing and being a, you know, the heart of the community and that's going to outlive me. And, that's cool. and you know, in, I've left it in a good place and we still own it, you know, got some really good people running that club now. And now I'm focused on, on starting Vancouver football club. So we're the only group that owns essentially two teams in this league. And because, you know, it's about investing in this game and, and, you know, we've created in the league 300, 300 jobs and, uh, players, referees, administrators, you know, business operations. So we've created this economy in this country that didn't exist four years ago. And uh, I think we're all very proud of that. And now I've moved players on, young kids that never had a look. And we talk about the late bloomer. And there's an interesting story, a, a kid named Lucas McNaughton. We took him out of uh, basically the men's league in Ontario at 22 years old. He went to University of Toronto. After that, University of Toronto, he tried out for the TFC, Toronto FC, didn't make it, got cut. But about to quit, uh, and he was he got, he got a job offer, I think, for some architectural firm at 22, and he called us and said, hey, I want to come play in the Canadian Premier League. This is year one at Pacific Football Club. And we said, yeah, I'll come over, we have a look. So he came over for a week, he had a trial, liked him enough to sign him to a minimum league contract, which is pretty much nothing. You're hardly making enough money, but it's enough to survive, and it's an opportunity. You know, you're not here to get rich. You know, it's about providing that. So he's 22, turns 23, plays his year first year did all right second year did pretty good last year we won the uh canadian premier league we beat vancouver football club we played toronto fc in the semi-finals of the canadian championship this is toronto fc that had a, a payroll of 25 million our, our payroll was eight hundred thousand total amazing and we went toe-to-toe -to -toe. we lost 2-1 to toronto fc they had all their big guns out and then after that season toronto fc bought them bought them from us paid money to take him Nice. And now he's playing for Toronto FC. He played all this season and he just got called to the national team and most likely will be going to the World Cup. Nice. Like, that's is that awesome. not a cool story? <laughs> that's so cool. Right? And and this kid, without changed this league, his life. changed his life. Yeah. Without this league, that would never happen. Yeah. And there's plenty of kids like that that need that opportunity, that are the late bloomers that fell through the cracks, that didn't get the opportunity for whatever reason. And uh, I love stories like that. And there's going to be, you know, a thousand more stories like that. Well, imagine how many young kids are... Um, in that crowd of the Pacific football club, right? You know, like little kids thinking like this, I can see this. I could, I want to do this one. I'm day. telling you, you go to those games and, and our, our, our stars, right. In the, in the local community and the local team are like absolute heroes to these kids. Yeah. And I see these seven, eight year olds and I have friends, I have young kids that idolize our players. And in, in the grand scheme of, of the world, they're kind of irrelevant. I love my guys. I love my players, but outside, but they're absolute heroes in the community and they inspire these young kids and these kids now go back to the, you know, they want to be the next Marco Bustos or the next Lucas McNaughton. And they, it's, it's about inspiring these young kids that whether it's going back to soccer or their other sports and being active and being healthy and, you know, you need these icons. And if, if 
they may not be world icons or, or, or heroes, but if they're in your community and they're role models, you're doing something positive, right? Yeah. And I think that's that's something really neat I've noticed. That's so cool. And the Vancouver Football Club sounds cool. It's such a cool brand. Yeah, we're proud of that. And when we when we went down the path, um, you know, we started having conversations with different municipalities. We needed a venue. And it was very important that it was a soccer venue, you know, not some some stadium with a track around it. Um, you know, not some monstrosity downtown, you know, that was, that looks empty no matter what something, something accessible, um, something intimate soccer is about intimacy is about atmosphere. And I said, okay, so we literally, I, I, I pretty much spammed every mayor in the, in the lower mainland saying, here's our concept. Here's what we want to do. We need a venue. Do you have land? There's modular stadiums you can build now that can be, that can be prefab. They're under 10 million and they're erected in four, four weeks and you could take them down, you can move them around. So you're not talking about hundreds of millions of dollars investments for a municipality. It brings economic stimulus to the bars, the restaurants, the hotels, on and on. And, and you know, any progressive government would understand that. It's, it's great for the community, it inspires the community, it brings people together and there's, there's a serious economic uh, impact on that. So Langley Township of Langley has the Langley Event Center, they have the Vancouver Giants, so the Giants play there. They have the new basketball team called the Vancouver Bandits. They were the Fraser Valley Bandits. So they're in the CEBL league. So it's kind of the all Canadian basketball league. They're kind of doing something similar to what we're doing. And so they already had two pro semi-pro teams there. And uh, they had this beautiful piece of property right next to the, to the indoor venue. And they said, would you want to play here? We'll, we'll put a 8,000 seat stadium on this venue. And I said, you know, looked at the demographics, did about a 20 kilometer square radius, you know, look at it. We're talking 1.2 million people, you know, really the numbers work at 5,000 people. The business model works if you're getting averaging 5,000 plus a game in Pacific, we're at like four, 4,500 with a population of 300,000 and you're out in Langford. I'm thinking, okay, the demographics, the market, the young families, I love this location right off the highway. You can, it's accessible to pretty much everyone. If you look at the map, it's right in the center from Abbotsford, Surrey, Coquitlam, and all the growth happened around there. And uh, so we looked at the brand and we looked, so long story short, um, they we agreed to, for them to build the stadium for us and we'd bring the team. And um, so we looked at the branding and, and the challenges around, you know, Fraser Valley, Deagle Langley, a little bit small, a little bit micro thinking. You know, we wanna be a little bit bigger. When we travel, what do we say? We all say we're from Vancouver, whether you're from Coquitlam, Langley, Surrey, it's Vancouver, it's greater Vancouver, lower mainland. We wanted something big. You know, when I played in LA, the LA Galaxy are actually in Carson, California. It's nowhere near LA. And uh, they didn't call themselves Carson Galaxy. They were LA Galaxy. And we said, you know what, we gotta think bigger um, because this is again, this is a club that's gonna be a hundred plus years old. And when you travel, you wanna say Vancouver, people know it, whether it's outside this province, whether it's internationally, we wanna be an international brand and, and why not leverage this beautiful city of ours? And uh, it doesn't really matter where you are, it's Vancouver as a whole. And uh, that means we can bring people from Surrey, fans from Abbotsford, fans from Chilliwack, Coquitlam, wherever. I think Vancouver is general enough that, that people are proud of it. And so, yeah, that's how we came up with Vancouver Football Club. And I think it's a, I think it's a slick name. It's awesome. And uh, we went with an edgier brand, uh, you know, blacks and, and charcoals and silvers and a little bit of a red. And, uh, you know, I think the essence of soccer, the essence of football comes from the streets. And that's where most kids start playing the game. 
and it's edgier. It's a little bit street. It's a little bit tougher. And sort of that's sort of the that's brand. Cool. It's kind of the brand we want to capture. So we had a we had our launch event last week, and it was really cool that we had 300 people in the room. We had a cap at 300, and and we had these really cool lights and just the edginess of it. We had these sort of uh, these these kind of these walls that were plastered with posters and graffiti and that's kind of the look and people said I, I like that i want to get behind that and and you know the club for the community in europe you go around europe every single little city has a club that's for the community that's that's a, that's the heart and soul of the community the community and so that's a, that's something we want to capture and i think um i think there's a market opportunity for that yeah you nailed it looks really good man so when can we see a game when's that when's it all coming to real life we are kicking a ball in uh in april um, so we got to sign players. We signed our coach. He's an international coach, coach around the world. Um, coach national team has been to three world cups. So he's a, he's a pretty big deal in the soccer world. And so, yeah, we have to, uh, we have to sign 23 players. We have to build the stadium, which is being manufactured right now in, in Asia. So I, we have, we have confirmation it's actually being built and it's going to be uh, delivered in January. <laughs> and, How do you uh, sleep, man? That must be I don't racket. sleep. I don't sleep because uh, to try to sign 23 players to try to be competitive because we all know Vancouver wants to win and they don't, you know, they're not interested if you're losing. So we need a competitive team. Uh, we need a, a killer kick-ass venue that people want to say, what the hell is this? I've never been to something like this. And, and there's nothing like it. There's, there's no soccer venue in this city. You know, you got BC place. I don't even know what that is. No offense, but I don't know what it is other than, you know, once full during the world cup with 60,000 people, uh, you know, you got the Vancouver Canadians, which is, I think a really cool little niche market there. Um, you know, we're going to be a little bit more like that with 8,000 seats. And I tell you what, if you get 7,000 people in an 8,000 seat stadium, it is like you've nothing be you've wild. ever seen. It is going to be wild, and you're going to leave there being like that. It was the coolest sporting experience I've ever. I've ever oh, that sounds of. awesome. In April, April, I believe uh, April fifteenth, we're looking at, and we're we're actually trying to get the derby, which is the against the uh, the the team on the island Pacific, which oh, is yeah. kind of cool. And we'll we'll bust everyone over and all the hardcore supporters, and we're going to have our hardcore supporter section. And uh, and have them fight against each other and totally and, and talk smack and, <laughs> and be a bit of rivalry. That. Start the rivalry, start yeah. the derby, and and uh, that's what it's about. And I think we can do the kickoff against them, and again, us all our hardcore supporters from the island. We got some really cool supporters. We got these Brazilian group, and we got this group called Lakeside Boys. And they play drums and they're chanting and singing the whole game. They do these tifos, which is these cool murals, and um, I think it'll set the stage for a really cool unique soccer atmosphere that that the city's never seen oh, that sounds amazing and uh yeah and, and let's see where it goes i love it i totally love it it's just so exciting my first one of my first real jobs was in sports marketing when i was still at uvic i, I was in the business co-op program and convinced the department of athletics to let me start a you know this like canadian university style there's mm -hmm. nothing like an american university no sponsorship nothing no, no swag for the players. I mean, just nothing. And I convinced them to let me try and I did it and it was all commission based and it was really successful. I was real proud. In fact, I could hardly work. I had to play tennis most of the day. Otherwise I, if I worked too much, I would make too much money and be making more than the head of the yeah. department of athletics and, and create bigger <laughs> problems for myself. So played a lot of tennis, but had a lot of success. And so I get just a taste of what you're talking about, a taste of like, 
put an event together with things going on other than just the game to add value to the fans and stuff? You have to. And, and, and when you go to Europe, you turn the lights on in the state, especially in Germany, people show up where, where it's in, in North America and Canada, it's entertainment first, sport second. So we're in the entertainment business. There's no question. As much as I, I love the game, I've been around the world. I know what the game is. It's entertainment, number one. So mom and dad, where how are the kids eating? What sort of entertainment? Is there bouncy castles? Is there, you know, face painting? You know, it's okay. The kids are taken care of. There's, there's, there's a huge different various group of demographic that are interested to go to your game that aren't just there for the soccer. We get that. So I think stadium atmosphere is number one for sure different activations around there how the kids happy because mom's happy is the beer good is it local beer you know stuff like that um the food you know food trucks i think are getting you almost create like a little food truck market around the stadium so really i get that we're in we're in the entertainment business but you know they they call it the beautiful game for a reason and it's the global game and i think um you know by bringing that here a little taste of europe is what we're trying to do and i think people are gonna you know gravitate towards it Tell me about the big picture of, you know, the business of major sports. Like, you know, you bought an asset from the Canadian Soccer League when it was worth nothing. You've added a ton of value to it. I guess you still owe it. But how do you raise capital? Like, what's the exit? What's the long game? So, funny enough, we started an investment fund called 6-5 Sports. Uh, we moved Pacific and Vancouver into that. So, in soccer... I believe it's the only sport where you can sell your assets. So you can sell your players. So that's a huge, huge business opportunity around the world of selling your players. So buy cheap, buy young, sell, sell high, buy low, sell high. And that's, that's the idea in soccer. So by creating, you know, a good scouting network, there's definitely a, a lucrative business opportunity by selling your players. Majority of, of the transfer fees are in Europe. Part of our strategy is we're looking actively to buy a European club. And um, it's called a multi-club ownership model. It's very new. Uh, Manchester City, which most people know, there's Red Bull. They're the original multi-club groups. They own 8 to 10 to 15 clubs around the world. Red Bull do is doing it strictly for marketing, but they've created a very successful strategy of taking players from around the world, developing them, and selling them on. So one of the most famous players in the world right now came through the Red Bull Academy, a guy named Erling Holland. He plays at Man City, probably the best player in the world right now. Man City bought him, I think, for 70 million pounds, which is which is quite cheap actually, considering who he is. Red Bull developed him. I think they've made, you know, they made, you know, that sort of money off him. But they're doing it for marketing because Red Bull is almost in every continent in soccer. So they have New York Red Bulls. They're in the MLS. So they've 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 captured the US brand market. Man City, they're in New York, New York. FC is the Man City group. They're in, they're in uh, Melbourne City, Melbourne City Football Club. That's the Man City group. So, so by having their brand in different continents, it's brand exposure. And number two, they have an opportunity, eyes and ears, in the local market to find those the next talent in those on the different continents. So that's really what's sort of happening. I want to do it from Canada into Europe. There's not opportunity for Canadian players to go into Europe. It's very challenging. So if we can create our two clubs in Canada, and there's a ton of talent in this country, I know it, I'm seeing it, You're, everyone's gonna watch the World Cup in the next three three, um, three weeks. You got Afonso David, Jonathan David, Tejan Buchanan, some serious talent that came from this country. And there's a lot more of that. It's the opportunity to get out of this country. 
So you don't have to leave at 16, 17, 18 to try to go to Europe and try to make it, leave your family. So why don't you start in our clubs? If we have our own club in Europe, why don't we move those players into Europe within our own group? So if we have a club in Austria, then eventually have a club in England, then within our own pyramid, we can move players. So by moving them from the Canadian Premier League, let's say their value is worth 250 to 500,000. That's sort of a market value of a player we can sell right now in our league. That's the valuation of our player. The minute they're in Austria, they're worth two to five million. That's sort of the average transfer value of, of a certain type of player in that league. Well, now in, in, in England, we're talking 10 to 20 million for a player. That's, that's a normal transfer fee in England. So now if you can create this pathway within your own group, then that you're moving your players, you grab them in Canada, you place them in, in your mid-European club, and then eventually your bigger club, where you've created that pyramid where you're moving these players. So there's there's a revenue model there that's very interesting that adds value to that portfolio. A lot of private equity money is going into that. Every private equity group right now is looking for multi-club. It's read today, the uh, guy, last name of Blitzer, he's a, he's a famous billionaire, he's at sports. I think he bought his eighth club. And I think in the last year, he's bought up to eight soccer pro professional clubs around the world. He's creating that himself. So private equity is looking at it as a really interesting asset class. The MLS now is worth, right now, if you want a franchise in the MLS, it's worth 400 million. Those were going 12 years ago for 30 million. It's, it's outperformed any market if you look at all the different markets, capital, real estate, it's been the, the best performing when you look at valuation, sports valuation. It's an asset class. There's the operating, which is a challenge from a cash flow. And I think I was reading something that um, um, Mark Cuban bought the, the Dallas Mavericks for about 250 million, whenever that was, 12, 15 years ago, maybe less. I don't know exactly. I think it's, it's worth almost 3 billion now, the club. So you look at sports in North America, it's asset valuation, it's equity valuation because it's supply and demand. There's only so many, there's only so many Vancouver football clubs you can have. There's only one Vancouver football club in the market like this that you can own. And it's a little bit like wine. It's a little bit like art. It appreciates. And when you look at MLS now, LAFC just got valued at 800 million. It's, it's getting to the NHL valuations and people are paying that. And so we're looking at the Canadian Premier League as, as an opportunity for an asset valuation there. So if we can create asset appreciation and then player appreciation that really combines, that's sort of the sweet spot that we're going for. So we had to start, we started a club in, in Victoria, we're starting Vancouver. It's an interesting brand, it's tickets, it's partnerships, it's merchandise. That's at the local level, then it's players. Okay, where are we grabbing our players from? South America, Africa, local clubs in Vancouver, taking those players, increasing them. The Lucas McNaughton, I told you that got sold to, to Toronto FC. We sold a player for, for a few hundred thousand, a player we got from Mexico that moved into the Canadian Premier League, into our club in Pacific, and we sold them to a team in Norway for a few hundred thousand. But if we had that club in Europe and he was playing there, we're talking well over a million dollars we're selling him for. So that's sort of the, the the model that we're working on is creating this pyramid, this pathway, and then it's a portfolio. What is the exit? The amount of private equity that are looking for turnkey opportunities versus trying to build it themselves. If I, if we can say in five years, we've just hosted the World Cup as a country, we've got this beautiful back-end business that we've created that's creating revenue from outside of our teams that's distributed amongst the Canadian Premier League teams. And then you've got this portfolio of three to four to five clubs that already have this trading model that's successful. 
that's the exit right there. I see it. Or, or, or we stay in it because we love the game and I never want to leave. <laughs> I'm also not stupid. <laughs> There's got to be an exit. It's coin flip. Nice yeah. to have the World Cup to look forward to. Yeah, and I, I could certainly say the World Cup's accelerated. The 2022 World Cup, albeit it's in it's in Qatar, it's going to be challenging. I think the games are going to be in the morning. It's going to change the culture in this country. I know it. I know what a World Cup does. It brings countries together. It unites people. And I think we've never, as a country, experienced that in this game. And um, you know, let's say what's what's equivalent the the World Cup or the the Olympic team, the hockey team that won the gold in Vancouver. Like, there's moments where this country's united. We've never had soccer, which is the global game to unite this country. I'm very excited what happens. Hopefully we do well, because certainly I could see this country getting behind behind our, our, our boys over there. But what's really interesting is right as soon as that ends in Qatar, the next four years is going to be a conversation about this is coming to Canada. And we have, I believe, up to eight games that are going to be played here in Vancouver. It's gonna. We thought the Olympics was big. We have no idea what's coming to Vancouver. Really? The, the, the game, the globe is coming to Vancouver and, and Olympics are great. They're cool and all, but soccer's at a different level. And I'm so excited to see what happens and grateful to be in the business during this time. No doubt. As much as many bruises and uh, sleepless nights I've been through. I, I bet. The game, is, uh, the game is going in the right direction. It seems like timing is good. I mean, you've, you've like it, it, Canada, maybe it was a diamond in the rough. It was like a land grab of opportunity, you know? It absolutely was. Yeah. It needed to be professionalized. It needed business owners to, to do what we've done to turn it into a business that can scale now. It was never like that. It was a not-for-profit federation like most, whether it's rowing, whether it's rugby, whether it's tennis, kind of, all these organized, they're not-for-profits. It needed to be professionalized. Totally. It's own pro league to professionalize it develop players and put this country on the map and we saw the opportunity and, and this is absolutely long term this is not a short term thing and um we're definitely seeing moment momentum shifting we're seeing big corporations finally getting behind the game and uh i truly think it's just getting started so a bit of a land grab it's been an expensive land grab this isn't uh <laughs> this wasn't a quick uh tech play where i've in and out no doubt but uh you got to be passionate about the game and really truly believe in it what you're doing for the kids though too i've thought you know been a hockey fan and watching wondering you know why are why is our country good at hockey and it's we're so small like how could we be better or even as good as the states or anything but it's just because the kids you know it's part of the culture kids play yep. and play and play and play and uh that makes for great pros one day it does and it's, it's a culture culture so much to do with it and and when you look at immigration in this country right now and, and some of the names Alfonso davies most people know in this country by now he's a world superstar well, he's, a, he's an African immigrant that came to Edmonton. And uh, when you look at immigration in this country, I think it's also going to shift the game. It's going to shift the culture. Most of these people are coming from, you know, soccer being the number one sport in their country, being passionate, you know, but we need to make sure we provide an opportunity for those young kids because, you know, it's, it's sports getting expensive. Most families can't afford high performance sports. So how are we something we're looking at as a league? If we control the, the narrative and the business and the game, we need to do a better job of providing accessibility for these young kids because otherwise, you know, it's getting those diamonds in the rough. It's getting the immigrant kids that just came from Africa that's 12 years old. How do you make sure he's being taken care of and bringing him in, into the game and developing him? I love it, man. I love what you're doing. I'm a proud Canadian. Make me prouder. I love the kids. I love it all. I love, yeah, soccer, I love, I love it. everything. I, yeah, no, to, to, to stay in the game, uh, to, you know, the game's given me so much and I love the game and, to give back. But look, at the end of the day, it still needs to be a business. 
Like I'm not going to sit here and, and be naive to it. It has to be a business. This isn't philanthropy, right? This isn't a charity, but certainly it can be. If, if it's done right, it can make a difference. It can change the game. It can provide opportunities. And, you know, it doesn't mean every kid has to be a pro, right? If it means the kid's just passionate about the game, maybe there's opportunity as a graphic designer in the game. Maybe there's, you know, you want to be a sporting director, a general manager, you know, a team manager. There's other opportunities that you can stay in sport. And I love sport and I think sport is so positive and we need to get back to, you know, creating these positive opportunities, maybe getting off their phone, maybe stop playing video games. And I probably sound like a dinosaur saying that, you know, and it's about being active and being with your friends and providing so many great life skills that sport brings you. And if soccer can do that and, and inspire kids and maybe get them off the street and, and motivate them and inspire them, and that doesn't mean you have to be a pro. And if we can have, play a small part in that, uh, you know, I can go to bed sleeping well at night. How do people invest in 6.5? So we are, yeah, we are an investment fund. We are taking investments. We're about to open up for, for our European opportunity. Uh, there's three or four clubs that we are actively about to acquire. Um, How do people learn more about it? 6.5sports.com. Spelled out. S-I-X. S-I-X-F. I-V-E, sports, that's plural.com. We've got a website um, that you can go for more information and then you connect with us. We've raised uh, close to $15 million uh, through friends and family, people that are that trust what we're doing, but really all looking at the opportunity in this country as an investment opportunity. Uh, it's a long-term investment. It's a passionate investment. But you know, if you listen to this and, and see where the game's going, it's a very interesting investment that could be you know fairly substantial and to be part of the game and to invest in the game we're, we're at the heart and soul and we're we're soccer business guys and yeah. uh you know we get our hands dirty and and uh add value so six five sports.com yeah there you sit there and a lot of investments are not this fun to watch i can tell you that no and <laughs> and, and it really started by a lot of people saying how do i invest well we're not taking investment well, I want to get involved. I, I, you know, half a million. I want to be involved in this. I want to go to the games and be passionate about it. And we've got a couple local guys that, you know, small guys that invest and the passion these guys have. And they're like, they bleed this to have a little skin in the game in sports. I'm telling you sports is, there's a reason why we love sports. It's so passionate and to yeah. be part of that and to have a small investment. And there's a win, which really I, I'm convinced there will be, I know there will be, and it could be extremely lucrative, but just to partake in the passion is is uh, is a lot of fun. And what's the best way for fans to get involved in the Vancouver Football Club? Well, you're taking the deposits, VancouverFC.com. I believe that's the website. It just came out last week. Uh, <laughs> um, you're forgiven if it's wrong, but we can find it. And uh, we are taking deposits. For what, season's tickets? For season tickets. So right now we're taking deposits, which means it's $20. You sign up. And you get basically first in line for That's good accessibility, deal. for discounts on merchandise. And when we come out with season tickets, which I believe is going to be January, you get first right on your seats. So no brainer. And other access. Yeah, for no 20, bucks. 20 bucks. Yeah. And then you get all exclusivity on, on all our upcoming events, merchandise, and then obviously first in line for season tickets. That's cool. Yeah. So sign up. Sign up. Let's fill the stadium. Let's inspire this community. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. I'd be a small part of it. You're looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll we'll get a couple of buses from the North Shore, get people out. And Rob, if people want to keep in touch with you or or uh, what's your social handle? I'm I'm useless. I'm a dinosaur. I got abused on social media as a, at the end of my career, so I just I kept it private. But I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Okay. You just search me up. I'm a closed 
private guy on social media. <laughs> I missed that opportunity to grow a brand on social media because I was getting abused towards the end of my career. And I was like, I'm going to be private. Yeah. I kept it private. But LinkedIn is really where I'm active. And then honestly, we're, we're just starting to, to activate our, our 6.5 LinkedIn. And um, we're I'm heading to the World Cup in two weeks as a FIFA legend. I uh, don't know how I got into that, but I'll be uh, partaking in all the uh, VIP events and, and going to all the Canadian games. No and way. Networking with all the former players. So it'll be... Oh, so fun. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, and telling about what you're doing now in Canada. It's yeah. So cool. And Canada's trendy right now. Around the world, people are very interested in what we're doing in this country. Really? Very interested. Clubs are interested in our players. It's, you know, top five country in the world. To live and, in. To live in. And now there's a pro soccer league in this country. Yeah, it's so people much are, better. People are really interested. So it's it's a good time to, to go over there and talk about our country. Oh, so fun, man. So much work, so much stress, but what you're accomplishing is just amazing. A lot of stress, a lot of sleepless nights. I'm still not sleeping. I'm losing some hair, I think. But, uh, <laughs> Care. Sleep when you're old, man. Exactly. That's what I see. Exactly. And to do something that, you know, to make a difference and, and to be part of this game, like I said, that, that's given me so much. It's, uh, no, I love it. I love it. And I, I just, I, it's about convincing people to, to get behind this game because it yeah. truly is a special game. That's awesome. And, and people around the world know that it's Canadians that we need to, this culture needs to change. Not needs, will change because it's uh it is a beautiful game for a reason. It is. Sounds like you're already doing it on the Island in just four years. It's probably going to happen ha faster here with so many more people. I think so. I think so. And people are looking for something different, a, a different sporting experience and, and, a, and a different club to to get behind that's making a difference in the community so thanks for making it happen i can't wait thank you thanks for having me It'll be fun